So we're up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 13. Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov Omer, Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Yaakov, says, Ha'osa mitzvah achas, konaloprakalit echad. Whoever does one mitzvah gains himself a single advocate. Ve'ha'over avera achas, and who commits even a single transgression, konalokateger echad. Gains for himself a single accuser, a prosecuting angel. Tshuva, maisim tovim, kitris, bifneaparonius. Repentance and good deeds are like a shield against punishment, against retribution. This is a very interesting Mishnah, very provocative idea that every action that you do, be it a mitzvah, be it a sin, is going to create an angel. If you do a mitzvah, it's going to be a good angel, an angel that is your ally, an angel that is your advocate, an angel that's going to defend you from God. In the unfortunate event that someone does a sin, that also creates eternal spiritual ramifications. Just in this case, it's not an advocating angel, it is a prosecuting angel. And then he tells us that even post-behavior sin, there's something that is a shield against punishment, even when you have the angel that is lobbing grenades and attacks against you, maybe you could acquire a shield to fend off some of those attacks via tshuva, via repentance, and via good deeds. Now, this rabbi, we don't really know a lot about him. In fact, there's a little bit of uncertainty who he was historically, not because he doesn't appear in the Talmud Mishnah. He does appear actually quite often. But in some instances, he is portrayed as a contemporary of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was featured in chapter 2 of, of Perkeavos, of Chapters of the Fathers. And he was the greatest, most prominent sage of the land at the end of the Second Temple era. So think about the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on. That, that's where he, he, he's featured. He's the student of Hillel. Hillel passes away at the turn of the millennium, and uh, Rabbi Yochum Zakkai lived a very long life, so he was a student of Hillel, and then he actually witnessed the fall of Jerusalem, and he was one who was smuggled out, if you remember we talked about him, he was smuggled out of the, the walls of the city, and he negotiated with Vespasian, and he managed to, to gain uh, several concessions from the Romans. So we find a story in the Talmud where Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov is a contemporary of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. The problem is, is that we have several generations after that. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai has a student, Rabbi Eliezer. He is a student, Rabbi Tiva. He is a student, uh, Rabbi Shem Barichai, Rabbi Meir. And then we find other instances with the same name, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. He's featured elsewhere in the Talmud as a contemporary of Rabbi Meir. So we see him appear about 100 years apart in history, as a contemporary of Rabbi Yochum and as a contemporary of Rabbi Meir. So there's various ways that the scholars try to reconcile this problem. Maybe there were two sages with the identical name, Rabbi Yochum Yaakov. One of them was about 100 years prior in the era and the generation of Rabbi Yochum and one was later in the era of the students of Rabbi Yitiva. That's one solution. A second solution is that he was perhaps someone who merited an unusually long and productive life that spanned many generations. Now, we're not told many stories about him in the Talmud, but we are told a few very interesting ideas. 
Number one, we're told that his teaching is like very fine sifted flour. Meaning that if you sift flour and you sift it a lot, you'll have very, very fine and untainted flour, but you won't have a lot of it because all the sediments are taken out. And his teachings are very, very fine, meaning you're not going to find a lot of his teachings in the Talmud. He's not going to appear in every page, but whenever he does appear, it's sharp, it's to the point, and it's accurate. And therefore, the idea is is conveyed that whenever we find a teacher of Elizabeth Yaakov, the law, like if there's a dispute, so who do we follow? Who's Allah to follow? The law always follows Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. So that's a very interesting designation that he's given the Talmud. We're not given a lot about him, but whatever we are given is sharp and to the point. And I would add, I saw one of the commentaries point this out, this teaching, of course, is an ethical teaching, but it's also a very sharp one. And it's also, again, we're given this description, whatever he says is true. That's what we're told. And all the sages unanimously agree. Oh, if he shows up, if he shows up to the argument, forget about it. You have to, you have to resign because he, his position is correct. And I think he's saying such a, such an astonishing statement here in our Mishnah. Every action that you do is creating an angel. Either a good angel that's going to help you, a bad angel that's going to be a foe. And we're told whatever he says is accurate. All the sages unanimously agree. I think that's a nice background to this Mishnah. Now, I think just generally speaking, the idea of our actions spawning angels, I think the message, the central message of that is, is that spirituality is tangible. It's not like, okay, you know, we count the sins. How many sins does someone have? Okay, they have 50 sins or 50,000 sins. Oh, but they're righteous because they have, you know, 75,000 mitzvos. So we just kind of ju- judge them as, you know, you know, in a single binary fashion. You know, are they, are they righteous or are they wicked? I think the message of this Mishnah is that every deed that we do creates a spiritual reality that is alive and that accompanies us and that surrounds us and that envelops us throughout our lives. I want to add another point, again, which is a very basic takeaway from this Mishnah. He's describing the actions that we do as creating angels that are either advocates, that are either defense attorneys, or are prosecuting angels trying to highlight our criminal deeds. And I was thinking, you know, we're told that not every mitzvah is treated the same. There's variability in in deeds. You have two people doing doing identical mitzvah. For one of them, it's easy. For one of them, it's difficult. The person to whom that mitzvah was difficult, that is a greater spiritual accomplishment. And you would imagine that the angel, the defense angel that that spawns, is really talented, is really gifted. You know, we could have a defense attorney who's, I don't know, Ben Brofman or Johnny Cochran or Alan Dirsch with some famous, really capable, really glib, really gifted defense attorney. And we can have them on our side. We feel very confident. On the other hand, we can have, you know, some pathetic public defender who had to take the bar six times before passing. It doesn't look very good for your cause. 
what it's telling us here that we're creating angels, I think we could imply from that that the quality of the deed is going to spawn the quality of the particular angel. And by the way, what happens on the flip side? We're told that someone should always try to resist temptation, resist the Yetzirah. Yetzirah says do sin. And we're supposed to fight back. We're supposed to say, no, we're not going to do it. Even if we ultimately capitulate and we sin, every resistance that we put up against sinning is going to lessen the severity of that sin. Someone gives in, but they fought really hard. They resisted really tenaciously before they yielded. Yes, they sinned ultimately, but that reduces the severity of sin. They put up a fight. They weaken the enemy. And yes, it's going to produce a prosecuting angel, but one that's kind of feeble and more easily triumphed over. And I think there's another valuable takeaway, you know, with this general idea that our deeds matter. Our actions are not, you know, just that, you know, God knows of it and he could tally it up sometime later on, you know, after we die. He'll, he'll, he'll have an accounting of all our deeds. Of course that's true. But the idea that everything that we do really, really matters. Everything's amplified. I think there's a, there's a very powerful idea here. And we find it elsewhere in Jewish literature. So for example, remember back in Genesis, Joseph is kidnapped or is, is judged by his brothers and there's a dispute what to do with him. Some of them say, let's kill him. And then some of them want to defend him. And, uh, and Ruvain says, I'm going to save him. I'm the oldest one. I'm going to save him. And ultimately they throw him in the pit and then they save him or, or, and then they sell him to the, to the Ishmaelites. Ruvain comes back to the pit and finds the pits, the pits empty and he rips up his garments. That's also what we're told in the book of Genesis in chapter 37. The Midrash says like this, Ruvain didn't know that this particular episode would be featured in the Torah for all eternity. He did not know that we, you know, 3,500 years later, would be discussing this deed. And every year, all the Jews and every Jewish community worldwide would read about the story and read about how Ruvain tried or started to save his brother and then stopped. And he only kind of did a, did a half a job, did half measures. Had Ruvain known that this book, that this story, that this episode would be enshrined in the Torah, he would have taken Joseph, put him on his shoulders, and marched him back to his father. What this is telling us is, is that Ruvain didn't realize this lesson. He didn't realize that this action is going to be amplified so much, everyone's going to know all the details of the story, and had he had he been thinking of those terms, had he been thinking of what are the long-term consequences of my decision-making tree that I have to do over here right now, had he been thinking of those terms, he would have made the courageous decision to say, I'm putting my life on the line, I'm going to save Joseph, I'm going to bring him back to his father. What this is telling us is, is that the more we realize that our actions really matter, and they really, really matter. There's angels. There's, there's these real, powerful, spiritual things that are going to be created 
VMIDs, we realize that, okay, well, I have to be, <laughs> I have to be very careful, make sure that I act correctly. I produce the correct kind of angels and I don't produce these monsters that are there to attack me for all eternity. On the flip side, we have Joseph. Joseph is sold down to Egypt. In Egypt, eventually he is brought to the house of Potiphar. Potiphar is his master. And his master's wife has designs on Joseph. And he's constantly resisting. And then the climax of the story is that there's one day that they're isolated. And she attacks him. And he refuses, and she pulls off his clothing, and she accuses him of attacking her. That is a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, chapter 37. So the Talmud gives us the actual batch story of what happened. Joseph is being seduced by his master's wife repeatedly. And he resisted, and he resisted, and he resisted. And there came a point in time where he was this close to capitulating, to giving in, to yielding to her seductions. And then what happened? The Midrash Talmud tells us that as he was about to give in, he saw a visage of his father, his father Jacob, appeared to him in the window. And this visualization of his father said to him, you should know in the future, this family, the Jewish people, the sons of Jacob, it's going to become a nation and it's going to have a high priest who's going to be the leader of the nation. And the high priest is going to be wearing a a choshen and an ephod. He's going to be wearing special garments, and on the garments are going to be etched the 12 sons of Jacob. And you have the choice now. Do you want to be included in that? Or are we going to say that you're going to be a shepherd of harlots? That's your choice. Your decision right now is going to determine your status. You're either going to be on the chest of the high priest, on the shoulders of the high priest, when he walks into the Holy of Holies, forever part of this grand nation, or if you behave in the way that you're kind of on the path that you're, you're, that you're setting out to do right now, you're going to be booted, so to speak, from this fraternity. And we'll talk about that one son of Jacob that went awry and he became sadly a shepherd of harlots. That's your choice. And of course, we know the rest of the story. Joseph mustered up the courage, the fortitude to resist. And ultimately, he's, of course, a great hero for all eternity. Same kind of idea. Joseph would have sinned had he not realized the long-term effects, the eternal consequences of his behavior. And this idea that we're holding this mission. By the way, this idea we've actually seen before. The very first Mishnah of chapter 2 tells us, look at three things, examine three things, and you won't sin. Know what's above you. Well, what's above you? A seeing eye, a hearing ear, and all your deeds are inscribed in a book. The same idea. What is the formula guaranteed to prevent sin? Realize that the Almighty is watching, the Almighty is listening, 
and the money's taken into account. And of course, when the money takes an account, it's a permanent account, and forever your deeds matter. Your deeds are inscribed in the heavenly book. The third chapter begins with a very similar idea. Examine, visualize three things, and you won't sin. Know where you came from, know where you're going to, and know before whom you're going to give a reckoning and an accounting. You came from a future drop, you're going to a place of worms and maggots, and you're going to give an accounting and a reckoning before God. And when you realize that everything that you do, the Almighty has a tally of it, and the Almighty's going to have to, and you're going to have to tell the Almighty why you did this and this and this, when you realize how important your behavior really is, you won't sin. These are all ideas of this along the same line. Your deed will create an angel. It's a fascinating insight. There is a real, tangible, spiritual entity that you could create, this kind or that kind. And I was thinking, maybe this is the most powerful message of, of, of Torah. The message of Torah, or one of the messages of Torah, is that we matter. It's a fascinating idea. Your life, your choices matter. The Almighty created everything, and he created things that don't matter as much, or they only matter relative to the things that do matter. We say that of all the species the Almighty created, only one of them has got free choice, has free will, matters. We matter. We have free choice. We have free will. We matter. Our deeds can determine the path of humanity and of our soul and, and everything. Everything hinges upon us, upon humanity. You know, I was thinking about this idea that, you know, if there's, if there's diplomats, and diplomats have a conversation. And it's interesting, if you, if you read about kind of the, the history of some diplomatic discussions, there's all these memos that they write. You have a conversation, you have a meeting, and there's the memo, and that memo becomes policy. And policy kind of determines how everything in the entire infrastructure of, of the di- diplomatic world, everything operates. And the words are chosen with precision because, you know, there are words that mean something in diplomatic speak that in casual conversations, you don't speak like that. And even if there's two world leaders or two diplomats that both understand the same language, there's always interpreters because you want to make sure you precisely convey what you want. I was thinking that, that that's really us. We're like diplomats. Our actions can move worlds. Our actions, our deeds are creating angels. It's much more important than some memo written by some sort of, you know, foreign diplomat. The whole world, there's angels that are going to be created via our deeds. We matter so much. We think of ourselves as little people. There's leaders, there's world leaders that they matter. There's great sages, great scholars, they matter. It doesn't say that in this Mishnah. It says, you do a mitzvah, who? doesn't say anyone. You do a mitzvah, you create an angel. You do a sin, you create an angel. We matter a lot. I remember hearing from my rabbi, he used to say that, you know, in this world we have news. What's the news in this world? So most most of the news is is kind of immaterial. Most of it. Maybe today you would say, "Hey, we have coronavirus, so things matter. You got to know. You got to wear a mask or or not or whatever." 
But most of the news is is entertainment, right? You know, there's the sports, a bunch of people that you don't know played a played a child's game and this team won. Wow. Uh, or there's um, there's this lady in Dallas who gave a haircut and then she was jailed. Did you hear that story? Wow. Okay, everyone knows that story. Like, what do what are we talking about? Like, what what information matters? Like, that's what we find out on the news. My rabbi said that in heaven there's also news. There's also news. But none of the news that makes it to the heavenly broadcast makes it to the earthly broadcast. It's not like, oh, 90, 98% of the news is different. You know, we think about, you know, you have, you have Fox News, which is more right wing, and you have CNN, which is more left wing. But 90% of the news is the same. It's just, you know, the spin is different. Heaven and earth, the news channel, it's not 90% the same and only a little bit different. It's entirely different. Why? Because the news that matters in heaven is this. There was a person that had a temptation and did a mitzvah nonetheless. And look at the angel that that created. And look at the consequences of that behavior. And it's going to be on the news. And there's going to be a tremendous emotional, spiritual reaction to this. Wow, look what this one person that no one knows in this world. No one knows. They're they're not important. They don't matter. They're not politicians, they're not celebrities, they're not sports heroes, they're not rich per se. They don't matter here. But in heaven, they did a great mitzvah. And that's what matters. And someone who was, didn't want to study, and they studied anyhow. You know what? That is breaking news across the wires in heaven. Very deep insight, I think, that's a general message of this Mishnah. Now, if you look the way the Mishnah is formulated, the way it's structured is whoever fulfills a single mitzvah creates a single advocate. Whereas someone who commits a single transgression gains himself a single accuser. So there is like a kind of certain limitation. There's one mitzvah creates one good angel, one sin creates one bad angel. So the Maharal says a very powerful idea. He says, you look at the previous Mishnah. And by the way, the Maharal, one of the most powerful commentaries on Perkeavos, on Chapters of the Fathers, he begins each Mishnah, his commentary to each Mishnah, by saying, well, how does it relate to the idea of the previous Mishnah? So he says, the previous Mishnah says, it's talking about Torah study. Our Mishnah does not mention Torah study. It talks about doing a mitzvah versus doing a sin and talking about how mitzvahs and, and repentance, these are like a shield against punishment, against ret- retribution. The previous Mishnah talks about Torah study and it says, if you labor in Torah, if you toil in Torah, then God has a lot of ample reward for you. And he contrasts these two things. He says, our mission talks about one mitzvah creating a single, kind of a limited reward, so to speak, in the form of one angel that's going to defend you. Whereas in the previous mission, talking about Torah study, it doesn't say Torah study creates, you know, this, this one thing, this one solitary unit of reward. It says the body has a lot of reward to give you. 
So what the Maral says is that, yes, mitzvahs are incredibly powerful, as we've seen. But the contrast between the previous mission and this mission tells us that the, the mitzvah of Torah study is that much greater. Whereas a mitzvah yields one reward or one unit of reward, one angel to defend you for one mitzvah, Torah is more general. It's more unlimited. It is a cure-all. It is a panacea. Idea number one. And idea number two, he points out, very interesting, that if I have a lawyer, does that guarantee that I'm going to be acquitted? Not necessarily, because I could have even a very good, a very talented lawyer, but if the case against me is convincing, or if there is a persuasive prosecuting attorney facing me on the other side, I could still lose. So the fact that I'm creating an angel that's going to defend me, it's great, but it still leaves the possibility that there's going to be an advocate or a prosecutor that's going to counter that that's ultimately going to triumph. Whereas Torah doesn't have that option. Torah is like an inextinguishable light that, like the light of the sun, you can't extinguish it. Whereas a mitzvah, mitzvah is like a candle, maybe, shall we say, a torch. But even though it's powerful, it can be extinguished. And the Talmud, by the way, and he notes this, the Talmud says that, it quotes a verse, Kiner mitzvah Torah or, a candle is a mitzvah, but Torah is light, and light of the sun. And just as it's impossible to extinguish the light of the sun, Torah is inextinguishable, whereas a mitzvah, it can be countered. We talk about an advocate, you can have a lawyer on the other side, and we talk about a shield. A shield, I hold a shield over here, that's the mitzvah. Mitzvah is a shield for punishment, against punishment. But if you hold a shield in one place, you're still vulnerable from the other side, from behind you, from the left side. There is a certain limitation on the power of mitzvahs, even though it's still incredibly powerful. But there is unlimited upside of Torah. Very interesting idea comparing it to the previous Mishnah. Now, the fact that repentance and mitzvahs are compared to a shield in front of retribution, it's a very interesting description and the commentary is taken in different ways. So one of the commentaries on Perkeavos, the Chassid Yaivetz, he draws four insights from the idea that repentance is compared to a shield. Number one, he mentions, you know, if I shoot an arrow at someone, if someone shoots an arrow at someone else, and the arrow is coming, and they see the arrow in time, they can right away lift the shield and defend themselves. There's a certain immediacy of the protection that is given by the shield. Similarly, says the Chassid Yaivetz, repentance can instantly change a person's trajectory, change a person's status in front of God. The Talmud says, and he quotes the Talmud, if someone is a sinner their entire lives and on their deathbed, they manage to do complete repentance. They have picked up a shield just in the nick of time. 
And then he quotes the Talmud in the book of Kiddushin. The Talmud's talking about marriage. And much of this book is dedicated to um, fringe cases where someone, we're not sure if this is a valid, a valid marriage. Why? So the example that he quotes here is a man, not necessarily one who's known for great piety, a man says to a woman, okay, I want to marry you, but I want to put a condition on the marriage, on the transaction. And the condition is that I am a complete tzaddik. I'm completely righteous. Now, of course, to be considered completely righteous, what a status. To be completely righteous, unbelievable. Who could say that they qualify? So is she married or is she not married? Are they married or not? Only if he is a complete tzaddik, only then does the marriage, does it activate. Did it activate or did it not activate? So does it tell him what it did? Do you know why? Because maybe when he said those words, he had a contemplation of repentance. And if someone has a contemplation of repentance, like that, they become righteous. Like a shield. You scoop it up and you have defense. Powerful insight number one. Powerful insight number two is an idea that we mentioned a little bit earlier. That, you know, if you have a shield, the shield is great, but if someone's coming with a bazooka gun and you have a shield made out of wood, it's probably not going to be that helpful. If it's a, if it's a powerful shield, if it's like a, you know, if you, if you, if you have a, a tank, tank's got lots of layers of, of, of armor protecting it, well, then it's a more robust shield. Similarly, prayer, repentance, and mitzvos, there is variability, and that's going to determine the shield and the ability to stave off various weaponry. You want to deflect the weapon, you want to f- deflect the projectile. Well, if someone's coming with a sword, maybe you can have a less robust shield, whereas if someone's coming, you know, with uh, AK-47, you'll need a stronger shield. And similarly, each sin is going to demand a certain degree of repentance, and each mitzvah, depending on the quality of the mitzvah, is going to generate a certain degree of shield. Number three, repentance has to be sincere, has to be true to form, and has to be robust and legit. You don't want to buy a prop from a movie that looks like a shield and visually is identical to the shield, but actually does not have any power to shield against, against attacks. Similarly, the Talmud tells us that we have to make our inside like our outside. The way we appear is the way we actually have to be. And only then will we have a shield that appears the way it actually is. And therefore, if we do our mitzvot, if we do our good deeds, if we do our penance at a very superficial level, you know what? We are creating a shield, but it is a very superficial one. And finally, he says, a fourth hint in this comparison of repentance to shields is the idea that in order to repent, you need a military mindset. Habits, after all, are tough to break. And without diligence, and without 
assiduousness and without tenacity and without fortitude and grit and discipline, you may have walked away from your bad habits temporarily, but the old habits of your will rear their ugly heads, they'll surface and they will be restored. And just as in a military confrontation, you need consistency and you need vigilance, you have to realize that with repentance, you're holding up a shield. And the enemy facing you is armed and determined to attack you. And in order to win, you must muster all your faculties. You must gird your loins. You have to marshal all your energies to defeat the enemy. And finally, like we mentioned earlier, if someone, God forbid, is punished and they do suffer retribution, we are trained in Jewish philosophy to try to identify the gap in our shield. If a mitzvah, repentance, creates a shield, and we do lots of mitzvahs and lots of repentance, well, we're going to be shielded from all directions. And then we suffer a little bit, and we get attacked a little bit. That is actually a divine message from God. There's still room for improvement. There is still a hole, a vulnerability in your shield and your protection that is being exploited, but it's also a message for you Find the gap, identify the gap, and plug it, and once again, you'll be restored to safety. And that's the idea that we find all over the Talmud, that if someone, God forbid, is punished, if someone suffers, if someone experiences pain, they have to try to identify what is the area of their spiritual catalog that needs to be updated, that needs to be restored, that needs to be perfected. Suffering, it's not the Almighty punishing us. Well, I guess it could be that technically. But we have to view it, or we're trained to view it in the Torah, as the Almighty sending us a message. And it's a message which is a very valuable message because if you are facing an enemy and there is a vulnerability, there's a hole in your defenses, you want to know about that as soon as possible. You want to know about that pronto in order that you could once again, update your defenses, plug that hole, and not be vulnerable to attacks. So that's the idea of this Mishnah. We have Rebbe Lezben Yaakov. When he tells us, it's finely sifted flour. It is very limited in words, but it's true. And all the sages tell us, this is it. It's clean. It's nothing extra there. And the overarching message of this Mishnah, I think, is for us, we matter. Our decisions, our choices, they matter. And it's, of course, terrifying on one hand to be told that every bad thing that you've done created this this attacking angel that's going after you. That, of course, is scary. But we're given the solution here. You have the ability to create a network of defenses. You could create shields. You do mitzvot, and you're going to be spared from the wrath of these angels. But this idea that our life matters, I think it's very empowering to know that the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, what does he care about me? I'm like a bug. I'm like a fly. I don't matter at all. I shouldn't, right? Logically, you would think, you know, what matters to God? 
how could small if the, of all the billions of galaxies and all the billions of people in the world, little old me, I matter, and every deed that I do creates this angel. And if we saw an angel, what would happen to us? Just one angel. And I do one mitzvah. I study Torah. I do kindness. I do charity. I I pray. Any mitzvah. It creates an angel. What an empowering idea. So that's the duality of, of, of this mission. On one end, of course, it it shorts us to make sure that we don't sin. And it shorts us to say that make sure we take every opportunity to do all the mitzvahs that we can. But on the flip side, we have this, I think, very inspiring and empowering insight. We could make the news in heaven. They could be talking about us. They could be gathering around and saying, look at this person, look what they've done. We have the ability to create our spiritual destiny and to create legions, armies of good angels that will help us, that will help a family, that will help the world, that will help the Jewish people. We have that ability in our hands. What an empowering idea.